You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. I hope you're well. Uh, my name is Lawson Flowers. If you don't know me, I'm the student and family minister here at Redeemer. Uh, and it's good to be with you. It's always good to be with our church family, and it's a special privilege to open God's Word and to teach it uh, this morning. So thank you for being here, uh, and thank you for listening. We are, uh, you can open up in Exodus. Uh, we're going to continue our series through the book of Exodus. So Exodus 17, verse 8 is where we will begin. Um, and if your family is like mine, I'm sure your family has uh, common things that you do together, right? Uh, you, you do these things all the time. You do them together. And c- the common ways you operate, rituals or practices or rhythms that shape who you are as a family. For instance, in our family, we usually eat breakfast together. That's something we do. We hug each other when we greet. You know, when we greet each other, we give, we give hugs. Uh, we pray before bedtime, right? This is just what we do. I have young kids, you know. Um, that's why I call it bedtime. It's not just me and my wife. Hey, it's time, bedtime. Uh, so, so, but uh, you probably have these things in your family as well. Uh, and, and these are little rhythms that, that shape us. And, and the Exodus is, in a way, a new birth. God's people went into Egypt as a family, a big family, but, you know, a family, uh, and then came out as a great nation. And they came through water, almost as, as through baptism, uh, into new life. And so th- this is a new nation, God's people. And God is shaping and forming his people in the wilderness. He's testing them, as we saw last week, to reveal their hearts and to cause them to depend on him. And this week we'll see him f- uh, further form his people in three aspects of their life together. And I think that in these aspects, we can learn how God shapes our life together as God's people. So the three aspects we're going to see are our common warfare, our common mission, and our common leadership. Warfare, mission, then leadership. We're only going to be able to do an overview of of each of these, uh, as you might can imagine, just in the time that we've been given. Uh, But I think... Um, I think sometimes the 30,000-foot view on a, on a topic is really helpful, and I hope that's the case uh, today. So first, we're going to start with our common warfare. Uh, if you will, as we do, please stand in honor of reading God's Word, and we will read uh, the first little section we're going to talk about, which is seven, uh, the end of 17, starting in verse 8. At Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. Moses said to Joshua, Select some men for us and go fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in my hand. Joshua did as Moses had told him and fought against Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the, of the hill. While Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever he put his hand down, Amalek prevailed. When Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat down on it. Then Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. The Lord then said to Moses, Write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Indeed, my hand is lifted up toward the Lord's throne. The Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you'd come and you'd open your word to us. Thank you for it. Thank you that you don't leave us without, uh, without your word, without instruction. And would you shape us as a church? 
today by your word, through your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You can be seated. The Amalekites were a tribe that was descended from Esau. Uh, They come to fight against Israel in in this passage. We aren't sure exactly why uh, they were in some way threatened by this large group coming through their uh, coming through their land, the land where they were. We learned from Deuteronomy that this was a tribe that did not fear God. And, and when they attacked, they actually attacked the weary stragglers at the back of the Israelite caravan. So that's a very dishonorable uh, warfare. Moses sends Joshua and some men to fight while he and Aaron and Hur, which I am saying Hur instead of Hur, because if I talk, keep talking about Aaron and Hur, you're going to be like, who is he talking about? What girl? No, no, Hur uh, is what I'm going to say. Uh, they go up on a hill, and they're, they're overlooking the battle with, with the, uh, Moses' staff. Okay, now, how are we supposed to understand this, holding up the staff? And uh, Well, okay, what, what is the staff? The staff, we saw last week, it's, it's, this is the staff that, that uh, God used to confront Pharaoh, right? Moses used to confront Pharaoh, turned into a snake, picked it back up into a staff, uh, it's a staff that God used to part the sea. It's a staff that Moses struck the rock with last week and water flowed out uh, to, to satisfy the people. It's a staff that represents God's power and God's judgment. And, and notice Moses calls it God's staff. Like it's not, it's not my staff, it's God's staff. It represents him and his power. So get this, get this image in your mind. Moses is up on the hill with Aaron and Hur and they're, uh, they're, you know, he, he's up there holding up the staff high. And then Joshua's on the ground with the troops and they're fighting the battle. Um, but then Moses begins to notice that when his hands begin to droop, you know, Joshua begins to lose ground. And then he raises them back up and then Joshua begins to gain ground again. He, he, notices, he notices this causality. Okay. Now it says when, when Moses' hands grew heavy, which, you know, if you've ever done any kind of exercise where you hold something above your head, had to happen pretty quick, uh, he needed help. Okay. Moses is an older dude at this point. And no matter how much adrenaline he must have had, you know, his hands, his shoulders, his arms begin to ache. But he can't lower them or they begin to lose. And so Aaron and here, I imagine, look at each other, nod, pull up the nearest rock. And Moses sits down and then they get on each side of him uh, and hold up, support one of Moses' hands. And it says they did this one on each side. And so his hands remained steady till the sun went down and Joshua defeats Amalek in the battle. Now, what can, we, what can we learn from this? What can we take from this? We, uh, as God's people, the church after Christ, right? We aren't a nation state as Israel was any longer. We aren't, we aren't ruled and governed by God as, as a, in, in a national way. Uh, we, as the people of God, we don't have a country or a government. Instead, we're scattered throughout the world as God's multi-ethnic and multinational family, the church, right? Living by God's plan under various human governments around the world. However, while we aren't a nation state, we still do have enemies. We have enemies, uh, which is why Paul says in Ephesians, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the principalities and the powers, the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Um, we do have powerful weapons, Paul says, to demolish strongholds and arguments that stand up against the knowledge of God. Just, just because our war is, is spiritual, just because it's not physical, we can't see it, it doesn't mean it's less real or less dangerous. C.S. Lewis wrote about this uh, when, he, when he's talking about the, the world wars. And he, he said, you know, from a spiritual perspective, I'm not sure that, that physical wars are bad for, for the spiritual perspective because they kind of strip away and you, you kind of have to think about eternity and, and what really matters, right? There's no atheists in foxholes. This is, this is our, our real battle. It's actually more dangerous 
There's actually more at stake than in a physical battle. We learn a couple things in this text about our common warfare. Um, first, did, did who defeated Amalek? Did, was it Joshua? Was it Moses? Was it Aaron and Hur? Was it God? Well, all of them were involved, right? They all had a, had a, were playing a part. Moses was holding up the staff. Aaron and Hur were supporting Moses. God, Joshua was fighting, but, but God was the decisive one, right? Because the staff up and down, that represents God's power, and he was the decisive one to, uh, to the battle. And that's why Moses builds an altar, a memorial altar at the end, and names it, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is our banner in, in, our, in our battle, and we rally to him. Without him, we don't stand a chance. Right? Paul says uh, in Ephesians 6, finally be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Peter tells us that the devil is a roaring lion who, who prowls around seeking someone to devour. We have a very strong and powerful spiritual enemy. He's, he's much stronger than us. He's lived longer. Uh, he's, he's very uh, smart, right? Um, he, he's powerful. And if it wasn't for the Lord, we wouldn't stand a chance. But if we're strengthened by the Lord, by his vast strength, we put on the armor of God, we can stand against his, his schemes. We couldn't stand against so powerful an enemy without him, without serious divine reinforcement. So we need, we need God, and the Lord is our banner. That's the first thing we learned in our battle. Um, second, like the Israelites, we have a role to play. We have a role to play. Could God just have swallowed up Amalek in the ground? Yeah, right? Could he have caused confusion in the camp and caused them to kill each other? Yeah, he does that. Like, if you keep reading the Old Testament, he does that. He's just swallowed the Egyptians in, in the, in the uh, ocean, right? What does he tell them? I'm going to deliver you. You need only be still, right? He could have done it without, lift, without any man lifting a finger, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He uses men, right? He uses people. Moses had to hold his hands up high. Aaron and Hur had to support him. Joshua has to get men and arm up and go and fight, right? We, we don't have a lot of uh, details, but we can imagine that he, uh, he, you know, he did everything that a general would do. He, get, he does reconnaissance. He prepares his men. He tries to take the high ground. Like everything that, that uh, a good commander would do, this is what he does. And God uses him and his men in the battle. And we each have a, a part to play, right? We each have a part to play in the battle that we face. We all have to take action. Paul says, uh, continuing in Ephesians 6, for this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and, and intercession for all the saints. This passage, you know, it needs a whole sermon series, but, but do you see the verbs? Like, do you see the, the actions here? Stand. Take up your armor and your helmet and your shield and your sword. Pray at all times. Stay alert. Right? This is a constant battle. I love the everys. Every situation uh, you know, all, pray at all times. Stay alert with all perseverance. Intercession for all the saints. This is a, a constant thing. Uh, it's, it's a con we're in a war, a spiritual war. 
And we have a responsibility here. Lastly, um, like, like the Israelites, we need each other. We need each other. Um, Aaron here held up Moses' hands when they grew too heavy for him. And Paul continues in, in Ephesians 6 and says, Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. Paul asked for prayers for boldness. Isn't that amazing? Is there anyone in history more bold than the Apostle Paul, than Jesus? I don't think so. Right? He's the, the greatest missionary that ever was. But it doesn't come naturally, we see here. It doesn't come naturally to him. It comes to him supernaturally through the prayers of the church by the power of God. The church holds him up. Our hands will grow heavy and our hearts will grow heavy. Maybe your hands are heavy today and your hearts are heavy today. We need to hold each other up, especially in prayer. If, if your heart is heavy, if your hands are heavy, are you asking? Are you, are you asking your brothers and sisters for prayer? Are you letting that be known? Hey, I need you. Are you, are you someone who holds others up in prayer? Are you someone that, that, that uh, you can be counted on to pray? I, I know people like that who I say, when I need prayer, I text them and go, I know they're going to pray, right? Uh, I, I, I wish I was that kind of person. I, I hope to be that kind of person. Um, but how often do we say, yeah, yeah, I'll pray for you? It slips our mind. We need to hold each other up. In the words of immortal poetry, lean on me when you're not strong and I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. I'm going to stop there. <clears throat> In our common warfare, we rely on God, we take action, and we hold each other up. We have to. Now look, look at 14 uh, again. God says, I'll completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. What does he mean? What is this blotting out? Well, this is doing, uh, this is God doing what he promised to do. All right, he promises to Abraham. Do you remember Genesis 12, what God promises Abraham? I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. Notice that part. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So, so God, God has fulfilled the first part of this, right? I'll make you into a great nation. He's talking to one guy, Abram, at this point. He's saying, I'm going to make you a great nation. He's done that, right? A great nation came out of Egypt. Uh, and so he's made him the father of the great nation. And then Amalek comes and treats Israel with contempt. They attack God's people. And so God curses them as he promised and protects his people. And God fulfills. He, he, he goes on to fulfill this promise in the course of history. Um, they are blotted out, right? He is at war with them through the generations. And they're blotted out in 1 Samuel 15. They're completely destroyed. Um, you've, you've heard of Israel. Right, you, you, this may be the first time you've ever heard of Amalek. This is the reason. God delivered and protected his people, and he still does that today. Next, our common mission. Our common mission. Um, did you notice the last part of the promise to Abraham, what God says? Uh, just the, the very last phrase, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Okay, so, so God said he would bless the nations all the peoples, through Abram, Abraham, who becomes Abraham, and the nation that would come from him. And so we're about to see a part of that, this promise fulfilled um, as well in, in this next section. So look at uh, Exodus 18, 
verse 1. Moses' father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, heard about everything that God had done for Moses and for God's people Israel when the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken in Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, along with her two sons, one of whom was named Gershom, because Moses had said, I've been a resident alien in a foreign land, and the other, Eleazar, because he had said, the God of my father was my helper and rescued me from Pharaoh's sword. Moses' father-in-law Jethro, along with Moses' wife and sons, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and then kissed him. They asked each other how they'd been and went into the tent. So Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, comes uh, and brings Moses' wife, Zipporah, and, uh, and two sons with him. Um, Moses had sent them away at some point. No one really knows why. Uh, it makes sense to me and, and some commentators that if you're going to go confront uh, the world's superpower and try to take all of his slave labor away, it might be good for the wife and kids to go stay at the in-laws, you know, uh, just for safety. Uh, and so uh, I think for whatever reason, they're reunited and they've heard about the amazing way that God has delivered Moses and Israel from Pharaoh. So this, this news in a time before Twitter, is spreading like wildfire, right? It's getting out, um, and, and people are hearing. And Jethro, who's this guy? Jethro, uh, it says in verse 1, is a priest of Midian. Okay, so he's a Midianite, which is, uh, Midian is another foreign tribe. It's like Amalek. And uh, he's a priest. So, so not only is he a foreigner who doesn't worship Israel's God, he's also in the clergy, right? So imagine your father-in-law is an imam or a rabbi, right? Uh, some, some clergy of another religion. Uh, Jethro comes, it says, and, and Moses went out to meet him, bowed down, kissed him. So he's, it's a sign of, of respect in this culture. Uh, and they, they go into the tent and ask each other how they've been. And then in verse 8, it says, Moses recounted to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had confronted them on the way, and how the Lord rescued them. And so Moses welcomes Jethro respectfully. Then he shares the good news of their deliverance with him. Have you ever tried to share the gospel with your unbelieving family? It's not easy, right? It's not, uh, not an easy task. How does Jethro respond? Verse 9, Jethro rejoiced over all the good things the Lord had done for Israel when he rescued them from the power of the Egyptians. Blessed be the Lord, Jethro exclaimed, who rescued you from the power of Egypt and from the power of Pharaoh. And it's like he can't believe it. He has rescued the people from under the power of Egypt. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because he did wonders when the Egyptians acted arrogantly against Israel. And then in verse 12, Jethro brings a sacrifice showing that he now worships the God of Israel. And they eat a meal together with Aaron and the elders and Moses in the presence of God, it says. So, uh, Jethro is, he's a worshiper of God now. And this is amazing. This is amazing because a Midianite now worships the God of Israel. A Midianite now worships the God of Israel. So do you see, even at this really early stage, just a short time after delivering his people, God is bringing people from other nations to know him. He's blessing the peoples of the earth, just like he promised Abram long ago. Uh, through Abraham's offspring, through his seed. 
And this is only the start, right? The, the seed of Abraham through which all the nations would be ultimately blessed is, of course, Jesus, who was born the divine Son of God, human, to an Israelite woman. Jesus, he took the gospel to outsiders in his ministry, right? Remember the Samaritan woman at the well? And, and he was eventually crucified on a Roman cross. And even in his execution, the, the nations began to be brought in. Do you remember what the centurions, the Roman centurions said when uh, Jesus died and the earth quaked? Truly, this man is the Son of God. The curtain in the temple at that moment tore, showing that Jesus threw open the way to God to all people. Right? You don't have to be a Jew anymore to approach God. Instead, you just have to trust in the, in the broken body, the shed blood, and the resurrection of the Son of God. About 40 days later, after he rose from the dead and appeared to many, many times to his disciples, just before he was lifted up into the sky, do you remember what he said? Do you remember what he told his disciples before he left? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all, everything I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And Jesus, still breathing to this day, stands by his promise to Abraham to bless the nations through his seed and stands by his command to us to make disciples of all the nations. He brought in Jethro the Midianite and he promises to bring in others, a vast myriad from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And we will worship around the throne. And he plans to use the church to accomplish this mission. Matthew 24, 14. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So our common mission is to make disciples of all nations. God wants to use us. What a privilege. To, to take his message to the ends of the earth. And how will the gospel spread? How will it even work? I think Moses gives, an, gives us an example, right? Through building relationships, through welcoming foreigners respectfully, asking them how they are, right? How you doing? And recounting what the Lord has done and telling how he has rescued us. Of course, many will reject our message, but many, like Jethro, will rejoice and will worship and we will eat together at a very large and multi-ethnic table with our brothers and sisters in the new earth in the presence of God. Is this your vision? Do you have a, do you have a global vision for what God is doing in the world? Have you looked up? Have you, have, you, have you thought about it, right? This is our mission to make disciples of all nations. How, how are you doing that? Lastly, our, our common leadership. Um, the next day, verse 13 says, Moses went out to judge the people. And it says they stood around him from morning until night. So this is a lot of people. There's a lot of cases. Uh, there's a lot of disputes, right? And, uh, it, you know, as you would expect and imagine, Moses, is, he's the clear leader. He talks to God face to face. So he's the clear teacher and judge. And they, they all come to him and he, and he, uh, he gives them uh, verdicts, right? And Jethro, his father-in-law is in town and watches him all day. And then it says in the next verse, he basically says, hey, Moses, why are you doing it like that? And we all know what this question means. If there's one thing everyone loves, 
It's unsolicited advice from your in-laws. That's what Jethro is about to offer. Uh, Moses replied to his father-in-law defensively. I don't know. You can't read it in the text. But because the people come to me to inquire of God, whenever they have a dispute, it comes to me and I make a decision between one man and another. I teach them God's statutes, statutes and laws. And Jethro is a real straight shooter. What you're doing is not good. Right, verse 17. Uh, 18, you will certainly wear out both yourself and these people who are with you because the task is too heavy for you. You can't do it alone. Okay, now this is just wise counsel. It's just wisdom. He says, this is too heavy for you. And that word heavy is the same word as when his hands, when Moses' hands were, were dropping, they got too heavy. He's saying, man, you, you need, Moses needed help then. He needs help now. This is also too heavy. You, he, Jethro says, you'll wear yourself out. And you'll wear the people out. You're going to get tired judging from dawn till dusk every day. You're never going to get through all these people. And the people are going to get tired. They're going to have to come back day after day waiting for, the, for their turn. You're going to wear yourself out. You're going to wear the people out. Verse 19, now listen to me. I will give you some advice and God be with you. That's how you should give advice from now on. I will give you some advice and God be with you. And then just go for it. Uh, you, you be the one to represent the people before God and bring their cases to him. Instruct them about the statutes and laws and teach them the way to live and what they must do. So he's saying, you're doing the right thing. Keep doing that. But, 21, you should select from all the people able men, God-fearing, trustworthy, and hating dishonest prophet. Place them over the people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They should judge the people at all times. Then they can bring you every major case, but judge every minor case themselves. In this way, you will lighten your load, and they will bear it with you. If you do this, and God so directs you, you will be able to endure, and also all these people will be able to go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. So Moses chose able men from all Israel and made them leaders over people as commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They judged the people at all times. They would bring the hard cases to Moses, but they would judge every minor case themselves. Okay, so Moses sets up a judicial system, essentially, for the, the people at, at the advice of Jethro. Um, and God, we see here God is preparing his people for the law. Right? Exodus 20, we're going to see the Ten Commandments. God gives the law to Israel. And so God is preparing his people for that, giving them a system in place um, to enforce that law. Um, so Moses in this system is the Supreme Court, essentially. And, uh, and he's got men under him oh, in charge of various numbers of people who judge the smaller matters but then bring the larger matters to him. So it's a, it's a good system. Uh, that works. Now, as we've said, uh, we, we as the people of God, we aren't a nation state any longer. So how might this wisdom apply to us? What can we think about um, from, from this text? Well, this reminds me of how the leadership of God's people now, the church, is meant to be shared among trustworthy men. Okay? Jethro recommends, did you notice, he, he recommends picking guys with good character. So he says, you got to be able men, God-fearing, trustworthy, hating dishonest prophet. Make sure you're not just picking anybody. Pick, pick trustworthy men of character. And Paul tells Timothy and Titus in the New Testament what kind of men should lead God's church, right? Uh, he, he says it should be men of character, faithful husbands and fathers, not arrogant or hot-tempered, not excessive drinkers, um, not bullies, not greedy. They're to be hospitable, respectable, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, able to teach, love what is good, right? There's all these requirements. Um, and they have to be men of character. We believe from the scriptures uh, that God designed the church to be led 
by a plurality of pastors, pastor elders. Like we, we use that, I think the scripture uses that interchangeably. So, so do we, pastors and elders, um, who, are, who are submitting to and under Jesus, who's our chief shepherd. Um, sometimes in churches where there isn't more than one pastor uh, or there's kind of one head guy, uh, you know, the, the pastor might feel like Moses does here. Like, man, I'm doing good work. Yeah, I've got, I've got to do this. Who else is going to shepherd God's people? Um, but, but even if he can handle all the kind of lack of accountability and the island that puts him on, he's going to wear out. And he's going to wear out God's people. Maybe, maybe you've been in a church like that. It happens all the time. I hear stories about this all the time. As Jethro said, what you're doing is not good. So I'm thankful for the, the true plurality that we do have here at Redeemer, by God's grace, right? A true plurality of leadership, sharing the load, authority. I'm not just one head guy, but, but elders. Um, our elders, and by the way, I'm, I'm not an elder, so I'm not tooting my own horn here. Uh, the elders are, they're good men of character. Right? They love their families. They love Jesus. They love us. And they shepherd us willingly and lead by example. Don't they? I mean, you know. Uh, they do this. Um, they, they share the load so that they're accountable to Jesus and each other and so that they don't wear us out and they don't wear themselves out. We should honor them, according to, to 1 Timothy 5, and, and according to, to Hebrews 13, submit to them and obey them so that they can watch our, over our souls joyfully. And, and honestly, just honestly, it's not that hard in my experience. It's not that hard when they lead with humility and self-sacrifice. Okay, 1 Peter 5, in talking about elders, says this, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Isn't that how our elders lead us? And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Good leaders of God's people, they simply reflect the character of our chief shepherd, Jesus. Jesus is the true head of the church. He's the true leader. He's the ultimate supreme judge of the universe. Have you submitted to Jesus? Have you submitted to his rule? If you're a Christian, um, I would recommend from, from Hebrews 13 that you consider joining a local church and, and submitting to pastors. Or it doesn't have to be this one, but some local church, find a place. You can submit and, and obey and, and do that joyfully. Um, but if you aren't a Christian in here, I bet that sounds crazy, right? And of course it does. Why would you do that? That seems, seems nuts. Um, and and you, I, would, I would suggest you don't understand yet because you haven't yet submitted your life to Jesus, right? Um, because just like submitting to, to pastors is easy when they're humble and self-sacrificing when they love us so well. So submitting to Jesus is easy when you see how well he's loved you. Tim Keller says every, every person wants to be both deeply known and deeply loved. Deeply known and deeply loved. Um, you can't just have one or the other, right? If you're loved, uh, but you're not really known, what does that matter? It's fake. Right? If, you're, if you're known, you actually are known, but you're not loved, you're rejected. That's everyone's greatest nightmare, right? That's why we all hide from each other constantly, right? Don't, don't put on masks, right? But to be both deeply known and deeply loved, 
Oh, that's life. That's, that's heaven, right? <laughs> that's what everyone wants. And, and in Jesus, isn't that what we have? He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows everything you've done. He knows everything you've thought. He knows everything you will do, everything you will think. He knows you. He, he's not confused about the things you're confused about yourself about. And he loves you enough to die for you. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. He loved you enough to die in your place. How could he love you anymore? Known to the depths, loved to the skies. This is what we have in Jesus. And so when you, and when you see that, and when you know it, and I don't, when, when you not know it, like know it. You, you see what I mean? It's not just you, you, you have an idea and you can say it, but when you feel that and when you know I, Jesus loves me, then submitting to him is the, the most natural thing in the world. Why wouldn't we? He's so wonderful. If you think that Christianity is mainly about sacrifice and giving up things and not being able to experience things, you just haven't understood, right? You see it from the outside, and I understand. You, you, can't, you can't understand. You haven't understood what Paul calls the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We have everything in him. He's so wonderful. God led and shaped his people in the wilderness, and he continues to lead us. He continues to shape us today. So in our common warfare, in our leadership, in our mission, Jesus, he's our king. Glory, glory, we have no other king. But Jesus, Lord of all, he's our only hope. Let's follow him gladly. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.